0: That's a bunch of really wonderful people can do.
1: Catherine Rain, dear friends, I am delighted to be speaking on Jibran tonight, and really I don't know how to start. Uh, if you have worked on an author, a writer, for the last 64 years of your life, I am 64, I say 64 because my mother used to read Jubran while she was carrying me and I'm sure that there must be something in the thought that if a mother while carrying her child contemplates an author, a writer, beautiful things, this must leave some residue and i really am delighted to be here and especially to address this subject tonight i don't know uh, whether i'll make any sense if you see something very near your heart you can hardly apply the rules of the mind to you can never do that but uh, i am glad to share with you one or two things first of all that this book uh, which uh, you saw outside uh, gibran of lebanon has been translated into Italian and it was uh, last, Sunday last, that's the 26th Uh, it was uh, published and uh, the Italian Lebanese community in Rome had a big uh, uh, festival in which the book's appearance was celebrated and I was saying uh, how delighted I was to know that there was an Italian translation first of all because it is a wonderful thing to be able to communicate to more people who don't even speak my language, either Arabic or English. And then also I have the satisfaction that I don't have to correct it. <laughs> uh, that, that is also a tremendous relief. And I think that, uh, having said this, I also say that the Italians are bringing out this, uh, this is the cover of the book, The Letters to Maisyadi, which I published here in 1983 in honor of the centenary. These letters were originally written in Arabic, written to a woman that Jubran never met. They started the correspondence in 1914, 1912, 1914, and uh, they had not met. And when he died, she went mad. I literally. So. Again, uh, this is a very, very unique and special story which is told in this marvelous uh, uh, book, uh, Blue Flame. Now, uh, I invited uh, Dr. Neil Lawson Baker, a very close and uh, wonderful friend. We are wayfarers. Uh, and he, as a sculptor, has produced some fascinating work on Gibran. Now, I invited him to come and to bring a sample of his work that is only a miniature of what stands outside his uh, house in uh, Wilton uh, Place, in Knightsbridge. Uh, How tall is it? Uh, How many many feet? Seven or eight feet. Yeah, seven or eight feet. And Almitra, if you remember the prophet, it's the woman seeress who Ask the Prophet to tell all that he has in his heart, and then it is in answer to al mitra's request that he pours out his heart. And I think that Neil, in his work and his love for Gibran, has really been the inspiration behind a lot of what I have done since I have met him. I would like to pay this tribute to him here tonight, and to say how honored I am that he came and he brought this piece. So, thank you for being here with me. Now, I am a fellow of uh, Temenus Academy, as you all know, and uh, this is my home, and I only want to also say how grateful I am to you, uh, Kathleen, for having invited me to come, and I will definitely come again next year, if you still want me but uh, that would be be a great honor and I think we agreed on the subject to discuss next year I shall be talking about the art of storytelling in the Arabic tradition so this will include uh, Khalil Dimna and the Arabian Nights and all these marvelous stories that came out of and which have really been translated into English uh, beautiful translations and they are available and we hope to explore this aspect Perhaps next time. Um, Khalil Gibran, Lebanon's great poet, painter, and teacher, was born in Bishari Lebanon, not far from the sacred cedar grove on January 6, 1883, and died in New York, on April 10th, 1931, having immigrated to America in 1895, with his mother, half-brother, and two sisters. On August 21st, 1931, his body was brought back to Lebanon, and finally laid to rest in the chapel of Mar-Sarkis, an ancient monastery hewn in part out of the living rock, not far from the house where he was born. Although Gibran spent most of his life in the West, his attachment to Lebanon, his homeland, and to his native tongue, reinforced by two years spent at the Collège de la Sagesse Rasatul Hikmah in Beirut between 1898 and 1901 remained strong and vital to the end. His first published writings, which were exclusively in Arabic, made him the foremost exponent of romanticism in Arabic literature. And it was to him, as founder-president of the pen bond, al-Rabit al that much of the credit must go for the dissemination of that society's pioneering and innovative ideas on literature, ideas that have exerted so powerful an influence on successive generations of Arab writers whether at home or abroad. Symbolic of his attachment to Lebanon was his lifelong correspondence with a Lebanese writer Mais Though the two never met sentimental but platonic attachment developed between them, and their letters, which have only quite recently been published, I published these in 1983, are marked by their tender expressions of regard, their transparent openness, and their passionate commitment to artistic values. Although his first work in English, the madman, did not appear until 1918. The intervening period was one in which the poet had been imbibing, assimilating, and gradually bringing to fruition the manifold cultural influences with which he was surrounded. First the patronage of the avant-garde Boston photographer Fred hollanday then his association with his American benefactress, the schoolmistress and patron of the arts, Mary Haskell, and the two years spent studying art in Paris at her expense between 1908 and 1910, during which he rejected modernism in favor of a personal style expressive of his own poetic genius. Back in America, the long hours spent in 10th Street Attic Studio in New York laboriously bringing his craft to perfection, and finally with the advent of recognition, admittance into the circles of New England cultured society. All this time Gibran read widely in both Arabic and English balancing the influence of Blake or Nietzsche, or, for instance, with that of the Sufi poets Ibn al-Farid or Ibn al-Arabi, so that Eastern and Western influences insensibly merged in his psyche. The most important and enduring of these influences was one that went back to the earliest days of his childhood, that of the Bible itself a book belonging to neither East nor West. The culmination of this period of gestation was the English oeuvre, foremost amongst which ranks the immortal prophet, one of the most widely read and influential books of the 20th century. His chosen vehicles of expression in these works were the prose poem, the parable, interspersed with his powerfully symbolic artwork. Let me say one thing about the Bible for the benefit of my Arabic speaking uh, audience. Unfortunately the Bible is in its Arabic translation when compared to the Quran, mistakenly of course, is said to be not of the same. Uh, literary excellence. I beg to differ and disapprove this theory. The Bible has its own style in Arabic. If it were to be the, like the Quran, it wouldn't be the Bible. Super. <laughs> and it is one of the most beautiful things that I have ever read in my early years, despite the fact that I was brought up in Quranic schools. But the Bible Arabic has a quality... Of rhythm which is hypnotic and it has a power which is its own and it is the Word of God too. I just wanted to correct that notion. We were talking about, I said uh, to Catherine today, I think it was Eliot's statement, there is no competition in the kingdom of God among the poets. And I want to assure you too that there is no competition in the kingdom of God among his messengers and teachers of the human race. I have a poem of my own where I speak. I was born in Nazareth, yes, and I was born on top of a mountain in an English hospital. It was called Bathgate Hospital. The doctor was called Dr. Bathgate. And I read this poem, really it's in Arabic, but it's descriptive of how I was born and how I descended from the palm in the hand of God into my mother's being. This is the word I used. And how I chose my mother to be my mother. And then as I grow and begin to dream, and I say, in even at first day i was born i saw a cross high on top of that mountain of nazareth and i saw two bodies one was christ the other was muhammad and i couldn't distinguish between the two i think uh, that feeling uh, inspired uh, my whole work throughout my life whether it's in literature whether it's in the art of living i still believe that for the educated Arab a knowledge of the Quran is incomplete without a knowledge of the Bible. In the same way, for any educated Arab a knowledge of the Bible will be incomplete without the knowledge of the Quran. Do I make sense? Perhaps I do. Jibran was one of the very few who have achieved lasting eminence and fame as a writer in two completely disparate cultures. In this lay his genius, belonging belonging to no precise literary tradition. He was able to build bridges between East and West, as a matter of fact bridges between Christianity and Islam, evolving his own unique creed of love and unity, and thus Enhancing the cause of peace and understanding in a world torn asunder by intestine disputes. Gibran's message found ample expression in his English works, especially in The Prophet, which shows his view of life through the relations of man to man and reflects the ideas on a variety of topics such as marriage, law, crime, and punishment, freedom generosity, religion, death, pain, and pleasure. His message in the Prophet can be summarized as a passionate belief in the healing power of universal love and in the unity of being. According to the mystic tradition which Ubran followed, the key to all things is love. Once that is possessed, it frees one from greed, ambition, intellectual pride, blind obedience to custom, and awe of persons of higher social rank. This is also the theme of the earth gods, and to a certain extent it influenced his portrait of Jesus in Jesus the Son of Man, and shaped the hero of his wanderer, which crystallizes Jubran's whole message of life and captures the mood and atmosphere of his homeland, Lebanon, As well as his native mode of thought and phraseology. Today, throughout the civilized world, not only Lebanon, which nourished his art, but all the English speaking world, whose language and literature he enriched, pays tribute to his achievement. The very fact that we have a lecture on him here in this room, in this very distinguished academy, is indeed a testimony his place and position in world literature. The Lebanese people can give him no more fitting token of their recognition than to follow in the way he laid down for them some years ago that of peace and understanding, religious tolerance, reconciliation between East and West and the unity of all mankind. I intend to make the poet speak for himself tonight and let's begin with his voice. My spirit is to me a companion who comforts me when the days grow heavy upon me, who consoles me when the afflictions of life multiply who is not the companion of his spirit, is an enemy to other people. And he who seems not in his self a friend dies despairing. For life springs from within a man and comes not from without him. I came to say a word and I shall utter it Should death take me ere I give voice, the morrow shall utter it. For the morrow leaves not a secret hidden in the book of the infinite. I came to live in the splendor of love and the light of beauty. Behold me then in life people cannot separate me from my life. Should they put out my eyes, I would listen to the songs of love and the melodies of beauty and gladness. Were they to stop my ears, I would find joy in the caress of the breeze, compounded of beauty's fragrance and the sweet breaths of lovers. And if I am denied the air. I will live with my spirit, for the spirit is the daughter of love and beauty. I came to be for all and in all. That which alone I do today shall be proclaimed before the people in days to come. And what? I now say with one tongue tomorrow will say with many In fact uh, true to this promise Gibran's work is translated into no less than 42 languages today And what I say now say with one tongue tomorrow will say with many Gibran's life, of course, at the very beginning was in Lebanon, in Bisharri. I must hear, I don't like to be negative about really anybody's work, but I sometimes have to warn uh, people who read about Gibran in other books. I was reading a book uh, that came, was reprinted um, by Jean and Khalil Gibran and the description of and. Jubran's mother, and I was horrified to discover that uh, Mr. Jubran, this is a namesake and a cousin, really, a distant cousin of Khalil Jubran, had not done his homework because he describes Jubran's mother as being flirtatious, as having, uh, as being a woman who engaged young men at the corner of the street in Bisharri at the end of the last century in talk and sweet talk. Now, if you know the mountains, especially the north of Lebanon, and it doesn't really matter whether you're Christian or Muslim, this is tribal, tribal honor. A woman in 1983, 1883, would not engage engage young men in flirtatious talk because if she were to do that she would be immediately killed now that only an example of the sort of thing which unfortunately people must be very careful how they present it it's it's not real it's it's, it's some Hollywood uh, imagination on the contrary it was a very conservative very strict society in which Gibran was brought up And America provided him with the kind of freedom which he could not find in that part of the world. Not sexual freedom, but the freedom of the spirit. This is another thing altogether. We'll be talking about that as we go along. However, his mother, for him, I think, remained a a tremendous force for achievement. She was an inspiration. It was her who made all women to him sacred and divine. This was his relationship with his mother. Uh, the relationship with the father was a bit more complicated. His father, we don't know for sure, of course, everybody, especially with a character like Jupran, It is very easy to create Or interpret stories. But what are the hard facts? We have very little. We don't know. The fact that the mother and the children left and the father was left behind in Lebanon suggests that there may have been difficulties. What they were, we don't know. Some say his father was imprisoned, he was an alcoholic. I have not found any proof anywhere. However, in other cases, you read the letters of Gibran, and then the letters, of course, are misleading themselves, especially the Mary Haskell correspondence. Well, this is not strange at all. If you know anything about Jonathan Swift, you know that Swift deliberately falsified his own autobiography. And every critic, you see followed the mistakes of the earlier critics until Dennis Johnson wrote that magnificent article about how Jonathan Swift had really <laughs> pulled this trick. And all the professors, you know, with PhDs behind their name, fell for it. Don't tr- don't trust professors with PhDs. <laughs> very dangerous people, I tell you, very dangerous people. Well, Obviously, his early beginnings, he spoke Arabic. We spoke about the Arabic language, the beauty of Arabic. And his Arabic, in fact, is very beautiful. Um, One of the early works was in 1905, entitled Al-Musiqa, Music. Now, the translation does not do justice to the original Arabic at all. As a matter of fact, Gibran was translated during his lifetime, but uh, he did not wish to contradict the translator, and he accepted the translations of his own time. These were of his own time. I think the time has come now for a definitive edition of Gibran's translated works from Arabic into English, which will take into account the poet's very special gifts in communicating in the Arabic language and his very special gifts of innovations in Arabic. No conference on Arabic literature anywhere in the Arab world would perhaps pay the recognition that Gibran deserves. Now I am a scholar here and I stand before you with humility and I speak the truth. And you know, if you speak the truth, you run the risk of losing your life sometimes. But I think that the Muslim world has not yet recognized Khalil Gibran, as he should be. And in Arabic, in large Arabic conferences, the name of Gibran is continuously repeated as being a major influence. It's unmistakable. Every everyone recognizes. However, that recognition, can you imagine, we are establishing a chair in the name of this man in the United States of America. We were raising funds. You know, Americans love to raise funds. As a matter of fact, the entire nation is engaged in fundraising. <laughs> a pursuit that I find extremely difficult to undertake, I was forced to do that, but All right, here is someone who has honoured the Arabic language. Here is someone whom if you presented in Western circles, he would honour the Arab nation. Here is someone who has really enriched the lives of millions of people of different countries, of different nations. With all the wealth we have, just think with me, with all the wealth that we have in the Arab world, we could not raise more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and if he were of any other, <coughs> most probably nationality, I wouldn't like to bring about dissension. And, but uh, but there are certain things that are truths. They would the whole thing would have been, you know, up, finished. But the the university is committed. It was an institutional decision, one of the major universities of the United States, to create a chair in honor of Khalil Gibran because he symbolized the greatness of the human spirit. It was a triumph of the human spirit for a young Arab boy to come to the United States without even having spoken a word of English at the age of 10 and 11, and to really permeate the very life and being of literary America by producing the most widely read book after the Bible. That's an achievement. Tremendous achievement. Anyhow, we shan't be unhappy tonight. We want to be happy, so let's... uh, Listen to some of his Arabic works. Now, no one left a life more tidy than Khalil Gibran. It's amazing. You know, poets are known for being extremely irresponsible. Not you, <laughs> <laughs> Very irresponsible and untidy. Really. And uh, I get into these terribly dazzling situations when my wife walks into my study and wants to see everything in its place. Doesn't really work like that. But, well, anyhow, we've survived over the years. <laughs> but here is a man who has really lived a very tidy life. From about 1905 to 1918, he writes in nothing but Arabic. From 1918 to 1931, the year he dies, he writes in nothing but English. Beautiful. Or he collects certain essays and puts them in one or two volumes that are published later. But these are not the major work of his career. So his career is divided into two parts. One part is the Arabic. other That is the English. It's very interesting to see. In the Arabic part you have the young, angry, enthusiastic, passionate, fiery man who is wants to change the world. And you see it and it comes through and it's powerful. And of course, like every single one of us, learns through wisdom that in later life you begin to think more and you begin to walk more slowly. And uh, for wisdom there's a price you pay. You become less aggressive in everything. And indeed this shows in his own work The wisdom overtakes and he begins to move into a new realm and that is the realm of the Sufi world and indeed he becomes a mystic and a, the mysticism of the Brahman is one that is unique. Before we walked in here, a lady, and I thank her for having asked me this question because I wouldn't have shared it with you tonight. I think this was the toughest exam that I have ever been uh, really put through. It was an airtight test. She said to me, In one word, why is he so important? Mm. The answer was healing. He has a healing message. Those were who feel broken, wounded, lacerated, touched. We look for some brave like him. We want to feel that we are loved and we are wanted. But there is some care for us in this world We're not lost. And suddenly someone comes around and says, You are marvelous. You brave you beautiful. You are what you are. And immediately, this hand lifts you up into a completely different reality. That's a healing process. Gibran had this gift in his life. He brought healing to the souls and spirits of a lot of people who at that time had lost faith. They could never find the kind of support they needed of the traditional institutions that had the power to give back. The world had become too materialised. Isn't it marvellous? The most materialistic nation in the world, the most materialistic nation in the world, becomes the most supportive. Of the most spiritual blessings <coughs> by an author or a writer. Isn't is like, And what a marvelous life it is that we live in it and we can recognize these things and, and see in every tragedy perhaps some kind of rebirth and revival. And I think Jubran really communicates this to us. He says, It's never too late, there's always hope. As long as the sun rises and you're alive and there are other people around you, you're happy. I think this message goes through in everything he has written. I have been reading this, sharing this, writing on this all my life. But every time I share it. You know, something grips my heart. There's a lump in the throat. There is exhilaration and there is a joy. Because it's such a great message. It's a message that it's an honor and a privilege to share. I think we all owe Lebanon a great deal. Poor Lebanon that has suffered for so long. And there is something about that too. We owe Lebanon a great deal that it has given us, Khalil Gibran. And I think we owe America also equally a great deal because it adopted it. And we owe the English language a great deal because it is a language in which he wanted to communicate the universal message. And he found, and this is the reason why he wrote in English, he was asked, why are you writing in English? He said, because I want this message to reach as many people as possible. This is the widest spoken language in the world. It was not because he wanted to become famous or popular or even rich. He was never rich. He died a very poor man. His estate is very rich. There's a big difference between the two. His first book in Arabic was entitled Music, Al-Musiqa. Just... One or two passages. My friend, music is a language of spirits. Its melody is like the frolicsome breeze that makes the the string quiver with love. With the gentle fingers of music knock at the door of our feelings. They awaken memories that have long lain hidden in the depths of the past. The sad strains of music bring us mournful recollections And her quiet strains bring us joyful memories. The sound of strings makes us weep at the departure of a dear one. Who makes us smile at the peace God has bestowed upon us. The soul of music is of the spirit. And her mind is of the heart. When God created man, he gave him music as a language different from all other languages. And early man sang her glory in the wilderness, and she drew the hearts of kings and moved them from their thrones. Our souls are like tender flowers at the mercy of the winds of destiny. They tremble in the morning breeze and bend their heads under the falling dews of heaven. The song of the bird awakens man from his slumber and invites him to join in the psalms of glory to eternal wisdom that has created the song of the bird. Such music makes us ask ourselves the meaning of the mysteries contained in ancient books. In 1906, he published a work which was entitled Arais al-Muruj, Nymphs of the Valley, which earned him the reputation of being a rebel and a revolutionary. A reputation which the publication of his later mystical works only partially mitigated. But perhaps more rebellious was his sequel entitled Al-Arwaah Al-Mutamarrida, Spirits Rebellious. There is a scene in uh, one of his stories in Spirits Rebellious, and there is a heretic in the story called Khalil the Heretic. The speech is as follows, and I will only quote parts of it. It starts in Arabic in the following way. From the depths of these depths, we call you, O oh Liberty, hear us. From the corners of this darkness, we raise our hands in supplication, turn your gaze towards us. On the expanse of these snows we lay ourselves prostrate before you, have compassion upon us. We stand now before your terrible throne, wearing the blood-smeared garments of our fathers, covering our heads with the dust of the tombs mingled with their remains, drawing the swords which have sheathed in their entrails, Raising the spears that have pierced their breasts, dragging the chains that have withered their feet, crying aloud cries that have wounded their throats, and lamentations that have filled the darkness of their prison. Praying prayers that have sprung out of the pain of their hearts, listen, O Liberty, and hear us. From the sources of the Nile to the estuary of the Euphrates, the wailing, of souls surging with the scream of the abyss rises. From the frontiers of the peninsula to the mountains of Lebanon, hands are outstretched to you, trembling in the agony of death. From the coast of the gulf to the ends of the desert, eyes are uplifted to you with pining hearts. Turn, O liberty, and look upon us. Almost written today. And it uh, ends with this marvelous crescendo. It's beautiful. Listen, O liberty, and hearken unto us. Turn your gaze towards us, O mother of the earth's inhabitants. For we are not the offspring of your rival. Speak with the tongue of any one of us. For from the spark of a spark the dry straw catches fire awaken with the sound of your wings the spirit of one of our men for from one cloud one lightning flash illuminates valley lanes and mountain tops disperse with your resolve these dark clouds descend as a thunderbolt destroyer like a catapult The props of those thrones erected on bones and skulls plated with the gold of taxes and bribery and soaked in blood and tears. Listen to us, O liberty. Have compassion on us, O daughter of Athens. Rescue us, O sister of Rome. Save us, O companion of Moses. Come to our aid, O beloved of Muhammad. Teach us, O bride of Jesus. Strengthen our hearts that we may live. Or strengthen the arms of our enemies against us that we may wither, perish, and find peace. Past stuff. They burnt his books. He was excommunicated, his books were burnt equally by Muslims and Christians alike. And when this happens to you, be sure you have done an excellent piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> Brown had an interest in world literature, many literatures, really, and it's very interesting to see his taste. This is what he says. The greatest literature, literatures he writes are probably the Arabic, or rather the Semitic, for I include the Hebrew, the Greek, and the English. Genius is present against things as they seem to exist. Keats and Shelley were protests. They loved the English scene, but they gave it classic setting in an imaginary world. So did Spencer. But the Greeks and the Romans were at home with the Greek and the Roman world. They were less like aliens. The French too are at home. They accept Dante. Uh, sorry, they accept. Dante did not. He was the greatest of all protests. And again of Shelley, he writes, He is a world in himself. His soul is that of an excited God who, being sad and weary and homesick, passed the time singing of other worlds. He is, in a way, the least English of the English poets and the most oriental from an oriental point of view. His Arabic work continues to be written up to about 1918, and I think it is with his English works that we begin to see the more mature Gibran beginning to write this. The the first work was entitled The Madman, published in 1918, and I'd like just to share with you the opening. It has no title, but I have given it the title Thus I Became a Madman. This is how it goes. You ask me how I became a madman. It happened thus. One day, long before many gods were born, I woke from a deep sleep and found in all, all my masks were stolen the seven masks I have fashioned and worn in seven lives. I ran maskless through the crowd streets shouting, Thieves! Thieves! The cursed Thieves! men and women laughed at me and some ran to their houses in fear of me and when I reached the marketplace a youth standing on a housetop cried HE IS A MADMAN I looked up I looked up to behold him the sun kissed my own naked face For the first time. For the first time, the sun kissed my own naked face and my soul was inflamed with love for the sun and I wanted my masks no more and as if in a trance I cried, Blessed, blessed are the thieves who stole my masks. Thus I became a madman. And I have found both freedom and safety in my madness. The freedom of loneliness and the safety from being understood. From the madman also, the good and the, e- the good God and the evil God. The good God and the evil God met on the mountaintop. The good God said, Good day to you, brother. The evil God made no answer. And the good God said, You are in a bad humor today. Yes, said the evil God, for of late I have been often mistaken for you, called by your name, and treated as if I were you, and it ill pleases me. And the good God said, But I, too, have been mistaken for you, and called by your name. The evil God walked away cursing the stupidity of man. In 1919, Gibran wrote a poem in Arabic entitled Al-Mawakib. And this has been set to music by Fayrouz. It's a beautiful song. Uh, uh, it's about the, the image of uh, wood, nature. Nature becomes alive here. I think one of the earliest, uh, perhaps in, in, in Arabic uh, literature, one of the earliest, propagandists for the sanctity and for the well-being of nature is Khalil Gibran. Of course there are nature poets, but here was a different approach to nature. It was the web. It was our home. We have to look after it, you see. So this comes throughout. In the same way, uh, his his uh, uh, defense of the rights of women to have their, their choice, this comes in uh, broken wings, where he questions the traditions where a woman has no choice in dictating the course of her life. And of course, throughout his, his work, you can see this defense of the rights of women. Mind you, it's not a feminist ideology. It's something completely different. It's nothing... <laughs> Nothing to do with feminism. I have to explain that, because lest we confuse things in an age where everything is confused. <laughs> uh, this poem in Arabic was very badly translated into English by, by by somebody, and I don't need to read the English translation, but it's a it's a beautiful image of nature by Gibran. In uh, one of his Arabic poems, he also, which published during that period, of he had written some time ago, was about... The conditions of his own country at the time of the Great Famine. And you know, I was reading this during the sad and uh, horrifying experiences of the civil war, which wasn't a civil war in Lebanon, it was a vicarious war. Other people were fighting their own wars on Lebanese soil. So uh, it was really that, it was a vicarious war. But uh, the Lebanese people paid the price. And it goes in this way it says, My people, my people died on the cross. They died while their hands stretched toward the east and west, while the remnants of their eyes stared at the blackness of the firmament. They died silently, for humanity had closed its ears to their cry. They died because they did not befriend their enemy. They died because they loved their neighbors. They died because they placed trust in all humanity. They died because they did not oppress the oppressors. They died because they were the crushed flowers and not the crushing feet. They died because they were peacemakers. They perished from hunger. In a land rich with milk and honey, They died because the monsters of hell arose and destroyed all that their fields grew and devoured the last provisions in their bins. They died because the vipers and sons of vipers spat out poison into the space where the holy cedars and the roses and the jasmine breath breathe their fragrance. This is a... Very touching poem. One other poem which I think would like to share with you is about yesterday, today and tomorrow. I said to my friend, see her leaning over his arm. Yesterday she leaned over my arm. And he said, tomorrow she will lean over mine. And I said, see her sitting at his side. And yesterday she sat at my side. And he said, Tomorrow she will sit at mine. And I said, Don't you see? She's drinking from his cup. And yesterday she sipped from mine. And he said, Tomorrow she will drink from mine. And I said, Look, 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 look how she glances at him with eyes full of love. And with just such love yesterday she glanced at me. And I said, and he said, tomorrow she will glance at me likewise. And I said, listen, listen, listen to her whispering songs of love in his ears. And yesterday she whispered the same songs in mine. And he said, tomorrow she will whisper them in mine. And I said, look, look, look at her embracing him. And yesterday she embraced me. And he said, oh. Tomorrow she will lie in my arms. And I said, what a strange woman she is. And he said, she is life. The prophecy, you all are very familiar with, and of course everybody reads this, Passage about love and marriage and all that. I'm going to read one which is very special to me. And uh, did I read this at your wedding? Uh, The passion and wisdom? That's it. Uh, uh, Neil uh, asked, honored me really, great honor it was, to read some Jubran in Chichester, was it? Yes, in that beautiful cathedral. And uh, I chose this one, and you chose. Another one, so I read two, but this is the one I chose. There is a reason for that, and I'll share it with you. And the priestess spoke again and said, Speak to us of reason and passion. And he answered, saying, Your soul is oftentimes a battlefield upon which your reason and your judgment wage war against your passion and your appetite. Would that I could be the peacemaker in your soul, and that I might turn the discord and the rivalry of your elements into oneness and melody. But how shall I, unless you yourselves, be also the peacemakers, nay, the lovers of all your elements? Your reason and your passion are the rudder and the sails of your seafaring soul. If either your sails or your rudder be broken, you can but toss and drift or else be held at a standstill in mid-seas. For reason, ruling alone is a force confining and passion unattended is a flame that burns to its own destruction. Therefore, let your soul exalt your reason to the height of passion that it may sing. And let it direct your passion with reason that your passion may live through its own daily resurrection and, like the phoenix, rise above its own ashes. I would have you consider your judgment and your appetite even as you two loved guests in your house Surely you would not honour one guest above the other, for he who is more mindful of one loses the love and the faith of both. Among the hills, when you sit in the cool shade of the white poplars, sharing the peace and serenity of distant fields and meadows, then let your heart say in silence, God rests in reason. And when the storm comes and the mighty wind shakes the forest and thunder and lightning proclaim the majesty of the sky, then let your heart say in awe, God moves in passion. And since you are a breath in God's sphere, and a leaf, in God's forest, you too should rest in reason and move in passion. In Sand and Foam, Gibran tried his hand on short aphorisms, and these each one of them is a gem in its in its own right. Listen to first, perhaps. uh, This is a bit long, but he has shorter ones. I am forever walking upon these shores, betwixt the sand and the foam. The high tide will erase my footprints, and the wind will blow away the foam, but the sea and the shore will remain forever. It was but yesterday, I thought. It was but yesterday I thought myself a fragrant quivering without rhythm in the sphere of life. Now I know that I am the sphere, and all life in rhythmic fragments moves within me. For you who are Arabic speaking, no doubt remember Ibn al-Arabi's famous two lines, أَتَحْسَبُ أَنَّكَ Churmun صَغِيرٌ Beautiful, but it's it's a, a marvellous modern rendering of this tremendous line. Uh, this is Ibn Arabi, the translation is almost the same meaning here. It says, do you think you're only but a small insignificant star, a planet in the firmament? You are the entire universe. Uh, the entire universe is locked in your heart station for human being to be. It's a tremendous thing. It gives us and this is what I mean by the the the, the healing power of, of, of his work. When when I read him I know that I have some worth and I begin to realize how fortunate I am to be a human being. And how important it is for me to behave like a human being, fulfilling all the great attributes of Almighty God in every gesture, word, action, thought, feeling. And that's what really great poetry teaches us to do. It's like religion. You know, It's it's the same electricity. The power of God is a million watt. The poets have 20. It's all right. It's the same light. So it's all connected. I like this one. Remembrance is a form of meeting. Forgetfulness is a form of freedom. You are blind and I am deaf. So let us touch hands so that we can understand. The reality of the other person is not in what he reveals to you, but in what he cannot reveal to you. The real in us is silent. The quiet is talkative. Frogs may bellow louder than bulls, but they cannot drag the plough in the feed nor turn the wheel of the winepress, and of their skins you cannot make shoes. How noble is that sad heart who would sing a joyous song with joyous hearts. Every man loves two women. One is the creation of his imagination, the other is not yet born. (laughs) Men who do not forgive women their little faults will never enjoy their great virtues. How true! Love that does not renew itself every day becomes a habit and in turn is slavery. How shall my heart be unsealed unless it be broken? Generosity is not in giving me that which I need more than you do, but it is in giving me that which you need more than I do. You are indeed charitable when you give, and while giving, turn your face away so that you may not see the shyness of the receiver. One of the most moving. I'm coming to the end of my. So please try uh, have... Right? I'm just coming to the end. So just give me five minutes. One of the most moving, perhaps, scenes in Jesus the Son of Man and in the whole of Gibran's work is this meeting between Mary Magdalene and uh, Jesus Christ. You know, I am not a Christian. But I have such a deep love for Christ that is, I spoke the other day about my schooling when I saw the crucified one on the wall, what, how it gripped me, how it... It really... I still see him now. The first day I went into chapel, it was the most beautiful image of sacrifice. Someone who's given his life for the love of the world. Even if it were not true, suppose, of course it's true, but even if it were not true, I want it to be true if you understand what I mean. It is such a beautiful story. And what later in life made that image even more lovable, so much so that in the sanctuary of my heart, besides the religion I espouse, which is the Baha'i faith, I have the image of Christ enshrined in a way that I also have, Muhammad, I had all my schooling in Islam, all my tradition is Muslim, and my language is Arabic, of course. This is inescapable. So this variety has been marvellous. But this work on Jesus by Gibran was something really very moving for me. It made me understand Jesus much better than any theological discourse you can give me. Because I saw him both as a God and a man, as a spirit and as a power. And here it is another portrait of Jesus in which he talks about love, and he distinguished between what love and what lust is. Beautiful. Let's go through it, and please just bear with me for another five minutes. It was in the month of June when I saw him for the first time, as you know in Jesus, Son of Man, every one of these characters tells his or her story, you see. And here is Mary Magdalene telling her story. This is my experience. This is what happened to me when I met him. You know, I was saying to MacArthur today, I said, really, the story is the (coughs) thing. You read all the theology in the world and it's nothing like When you read the story of Jesus or Muhammad or Moses. For this is what it is. It's the story that remains. And here that story also remains. It was in the month of June when I saw him for the first time. He was walking in the wheat in the wheat field when I passed by with my handmaidens and he was alone. The rhythm of his step was different from other men's and the movement of his body was like naught I had seen before. Men do not pace the earth in that manner and even now I do not know whether he walked fast or slow. My handmaidens pointed their finger at him and spoke in shy whispers to one another and I stayed my step for a moment and raised my hand to hail him. But he did not turn his face, and he did not look at me. And I hated him. I was swept back into myself, and I was as cold as if I had been in a snowdrift, and I shivered. That night, I beheld him in my dreaming. And they told me afterwards that I screamed in my sleep and was restless upon my bed. It was in the month of August that I saw him again through my window. He was sitting in the window of the cypress tree across my garden and he was as still as if he had been carved out of stone like the statues in Antioch and other cities of the north country. And my slave, the Egyptian, came to me and said, that man is here again. He's sitting there across your garden. And I gazed at him and my soul quivered within me, for he was beautiful. His body was single, and each part seemed to love every other part. Then I clothed myself with raiment of Damascus, and I left my house and walked towards him. Was it my aloneness, or was it his fragrance that drew me to him? Was it hunger in my eyes, a desired comeliness, or was it, his beauty that sought the light of my eyes. Even now I do not know. I walked to him with my scented garments and my golden sandals, the sandals the Roman captain had given me, even these sandals. When I reached him I said, Good morrow to you. And he said, Good morrow to you, Miriam. And he looked at me and his night eyes saw me at as no man had seen me. And suddenly I was as if naked, and I was shy. Yet he had only said, Good morrow to you. And then I said to him, Will you not come to my house? And he said, Am I not already in your house? I did not know what he meant then, but I know now. Not. And I said, Will you not have wine and bread with me? And he said, Yes, Miriam, but not now. Not now. Not now, he said. And the voice of the sea was in those two words, and the voice of the wind and the trees. And when he said them unto me, life spoke to death. For mind you, my friend, I was dead. I was a woman who had divorced her soul. I was living apart from this self which you now see. I belonged to all men and to none. They called me harlot and a woman possessed of seven devils. I was cursed and I was envied. But when his dawn eyes looked into my eyes, all the stars of my night faded away, and I became Miriam, only Miriam, a woman lost to the earth she had known, and finding herself in new places. And now again I said to him, Come into my house and share bread and wine with me. And he said, why do you bid me to, your, to be your guest? And I said, I beg you to come into my house. And it was all that was sod in me and all that was sky in me calling unto him. And he looked at me, and the noontide of his eyes was upon me, and he said, You have many lovers, and yet I alone love you. Other men love themselves in your nearness. I love you in yourself. Other men see a beauty in you that shall fade away sooner than their own years. But I see in you a beauty that shall not fade away, and in the autumn of your days that beauty shall not be afraid to gaze at itself in the mirror and it shall not be offended. I alone love the unseen in you. Then he said in a low voice, Go away now, if this cypress tree is yours and you would not have me sit in its shadow, I will walk my way. And I cried to him, and I said, Master, come to my house. I have incense to burn for you and a silver basin for your feet. You are a stranger and yet not a stranger. I entreat you, come to my house. Then he stood up and looked at me even as the seasons might look down upon the fields and he smiled and he said again, All men love you for themselves. I love you for yourself. And then he walked away. But no other man ever walked the way he walked. Was it a breath born in my garden that moved to the east? Was it a storm that would shake all things to their foundations? I knew not, but on that day the sunset of his eyes slew the dragon in me and I became a woman. I became Miriam, Miriam of Medjadev. You know, I could go on and on and on with this marvellous poetry. I, You know, the university professors are in the habit to talk a lot about the poetry which they never read or share with their students. And I thought this evening what I have done is the opposite. And what I shared with you are the words of Gibran, but after all, what can I say that can be superior to what the author and the subject of our discussion can say himself? All this, you know, critical analysis, this is something, as I grow older, I think that I have wasted a lot of my time doing it, a lot of my time. But I tried to share with you tonight, perhaps... Something of the spirit of Gibran, and something of the spirit of Lebanon too. Because I think Gibran and Lebanon are inseparable. A country like Lebanon produced Gibran, because it is a country where all the religions of the world seem to find refuge, and in which Christian and Muslim and Jew and all other faiths can live in Let's hope that this message will at least bring peace to Lebanon again and also to many other parts of the world. How do you end a lecture like this? I think the only way you can end it is by quoting the poet again. And I would say this perhaps Now I will rise and strip me of time and space and I will dance in the field untrodden. The dancer's feet will move with my feet and I will sing in that higher air and a human voice will throb within my voice. We shall pass into the twilight perchance to wake to the dawn of another world but love shall stay and his finger marks shall not be erased. The blessed forge burns, the sparks rise, and each spark is a sun. Better it is for us, and wiser, to seek a shadowed nook and sleep in our earth divinity, and let love, human and frail, command the coming day.
0: To hear that lecture. <laughs> that was, um, I must repeat this, although I think I mentioned it before. You had, on the centenary of Kaliyeh arranged a wonderful celebration in Beirut, to which I and others were invited. And on the day it was to begin, I arrived, everything had been cancelled because of the Terrible war, which has been shaking your country. There were the exhibits hung on the walls. It didn't take place, but it was an amazing. For me, this is one of the most important things of my life that you invited me, Blanche, because, of course, my master William Blake is also a great prophet, and this event, this non-event was uh, in which I saw from my, with my own eyes what it is to live in a country that is torn with hatred and war. And at, so close at hand, everyone was just round the next corner. There, was, there were Jews this way, there were Jews that way, there was a whole thing. And this beautiful country of the, of the Lebanon, of the cedars and the scent of the fragrance of, of, of pine in the air. It, it's a wonderful country. It, it and of course, um so you know, is tempered in that fire. I think it was three times or this was destroyed. And and only then did you go to America, following indeed in the steps of the Master, who was there to, as it were, meet to in, in the University of Maryland. And it's all gone from there because Without sacrifice, such things are vain. And it is the sacrifice of all that Lebanon meant, and symbolized for me by that tragic but wonderful occasion. And from that, this rebirth, that we've had the privilege tonight of hearing you, as I say, give a lecture. I've waited, I think, is it 10 years to hear?
1: Well, it is 10 years. Yes,
0: yeah, it is 10 years. And now, it's a wonderful privilege with Temenos that we have heard. The voice of truth, because you see the academics, so uh, they're not interested in these things. But uh, this this is what we are here for. This is what we stand for. At least I hope we do. I hope we are worthy of, of such, of these things, these great things. What is the use of... of, of Talking about civilization, unless we are prepared to talk about it in these great terms of which we have heard from Khalil Gibran. And just one more thing you say your mother, when she carried you, was reading Gibran. I had my mother's copy of Gibran this day, the Prophet, of course. She must have got it in the 20s. So it was published in 1923. 1923. 1923. So there we are. These <laughs> things carry on, and uh, here we still are in Tavarnos. I hope we are bearing the light in our, in what we're doing here, and it's been wonderful
1: to have you. Well, I hope that uh, also in the future we could have a real exhibition of the works of Khalid Jovan for uh, people to see really, his work and his life, very documentary, with the sculptors who need. And we can. Uh, I have the exhibit, and it's it's. Unfortunately, it was shown here only one night, if you remember, mm-hmm. and so many people wanted to see it, but the exhibit is available, and it's, uh, it's really at, uh, 75 panels, it has about 200 photographs with illustrating text both in both languages, and it's a marvellous thing. With, with, with the sculptors of me. I think we could have a, a marvellous thing. We can arrange that, perhaps, sometime in the yes,
0: sometime, yes. yes. If we have space to put it between us. I really
1: would like to thank you for coming tonight and bringing no. Almitra. <laughs> so, you know, even even, even uh, this Almitra, it was very important. And um, uh, she, she could represent all the women in his life. He said, my life was enriched by women. The, the, my mother, my sister and my sweetheart. So he had them all.
0: It is. This world
1: would be terrible place without women, but a better place without feminists. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, marvelous.